Podcast, you are trapped in history with Mr. Malcolmson and Mrs. Basham. Mrs. Basham, I am excited for this chapter. It is our first real content unit, and it is the Middle Ages, the later Middle Ages. Are you as excited as I am? Probably not as excited. I'm not slamming my hands or anything, but I am excited to go over all of this. I think it also also shook the camera in the background. That might have been a little bit (laughs) alarming. I know that with, uh, you know, the students are probably frustrated and confused trying to find all their work and get all their classes organized. And it's also stressful on the teachers, too, trying to get everything in there. But this is the beginning of something exciting. And sooner or later, we're going to have, like, hundreds of these episodes. We're not going to be, like, YouTube stars because hardly anybody will want to see us like this but hey we're growing something here it's exciting but nonetheless let's actually get into this i'm excited to talk about some real content something that you and i actually went to school and had degrees in now that is exciting yeah all right so miss fashion let's kind of get into we're not going to cover all of the middle ages because that's hundreds of years of time period but we're mainly for context reasons so students know a little bit of a background before going into our first real tested unit uh i want them to get a little bit of context about the later middle ages so just that last 150 or 200 years before we get into the renaissance and these dates are 1300 to 1500 is usually what's agreed upon do you have anything you want to add to that mrs basham as far as the dates and what the students need to know uh i know that there are some questions on our assignments that ask about what centuries the dates are so i wanted to make sure that we covered um 1300 obviously that's gonna be the 14th century so whatever date whatever that's so 13 1300 um you're just gonna go up a little bit so 14th century uh and then it goes to the 1500s which would be the 16th century Uh, which I know can be a little bit confusing at times if you're trying to think like, why wouldn't it just be the 13th century? Uh, You got to love history. You got to love how we organize things. So 1300. Bothering me when I was a kid too. I hated that. Yeah. Um, So you just always add up one. So 1300, 14th century. Uh, And like I said, I know you have a lot of assignments. Um, I have a lot of assignments, both of us posted on our Google classrooms that ask about the dates and ask what centuries those are. So we want to make sure we covered that today. Yeah, I think it's just easy to forget sometimes that there was like that zero to 100 phase that you have to call the first century. And that's what really throws off the whole thing. Now, just as a devil's advocate, Miss Basham, and that's something that you and I will use a lot this year, and especially in every year, the words devil's advocate, and just to kind of play that role. And if I was a student, and I say, well, I've always hated having to memorize dates. And even you and I, whenever we were students, it wasn't, it's, we, we hated the fact that our tests used to have to remember dates all the time. Now, our, our strategy is not memorizing specific dates, no. but what, what is it that you think that our students really need to know, not really about specific dates, but more about those, those windows of the centuries that we're talking about? Well, it's important to have a general idea on kind of what's happening during each time. So, for example, when you hear uh, like the 30s, like the 1930s, everyone has a pretty general idea, oh, World War II. Um, but just like you do for something like that, more modern history, it's important to know if I give you context, if I give you an article and it has, um, 
you know, certain words in it, certain topics, vocabulary. Oh, okay, well, this must be in this time frame because you have that general understanding uh, of that time. So, for example, if something, if we gave you an article and it was written in the 1300s, 1400s, we would want the students to be able to go, oh, okay, well, this is the Middle Ages. What do I know about the Middle Ages? And be able to pull that context and use that whenever they're reading the paragraph, reading the article, and answering the questions. Exactly. And a good example of that, Mrs. Basham, is like, you know, we, we, we're living through a pandemic literally right now, but it's still nothing in comparison to the pandemic that we're going to discuss in this chapter in episode five, which it needs, a, it's so massive, it just needs its own episode to cover on there. And that's the Black Death, or some of the students might recognize it as the bubonic plague, as we kind of go through that. And that's, that's what you get, because if you see that 13 and 1400s, a student should, like you said, remember, hey, I do remember talking about the Black Death, if this paragraph that I'm reading or painting has anything about disease in it, or, or death in it, or skeletons, or whatnot, more than likely, that's what, that's what we want that, like you said, you snapped your fingers, that, that little light bulb to trigger exactly. you know, that this is probably going to be about that or if you nerd out like i do and you're watching beauty and the beast and they show the doctor's mask in the background whenever Belle is in her old childhood home it's like oh well the, the black death a doctor must have been there well Belle's mom died oh my gosh she died of the bubonic plague and i remember i had that aha moment with my husband sitting there and i mean he supports me and my love of history he yeah, it's, it's okay to him. And so I'm nerding out about it just free. Oh my gosh, Belle's mom must have died from the Black Death. Look, there's the doctor's mask right there. And he's just like, okay, can we play the movie now? <laughs> I see, uh, you know, it just shows you where like history sort of ruins your life. <laughs> like you try to avoid it and then you start singing and movies and songs and things that you, you didn't really get it and you're like I can't, I can't turn my brain off I, I, I yep. saw it again and, and you come to think of it you know I've seen Beauty and the Beast a few times uh not like I'm addicted to it or anything I have like a Disney problem like Mr. Webster does but nonetheless like I, I think it's cool that you brought up something there that I didn't even remember seeing I, I wouldn't mm -hmm. have thought about that it's in but, the live action one not the car it's the oh, one okay, with Emma Watson was, in it yeah mm -hmm. yeah and I have to see that um, and try to find that clip we might have to like throw that Easter egg that into the podcast somewhere. I don't know if I can do that, but I might have to try it out uh, whenever we get into it. Well, uh, to move on to that, let's go to like what, what this time period's called. Now, we're going to call it the later Middle Ages because it's that last 150 years or so. Sometimes, though, um, you may have, students may have heard it called the Medieval Ages. I know there's, you have some of those goofy restaurants where you can go in some places, I think around Florida somewhere, they have those jousting Middle Ages restaurants, and I think it's yeah, called yeah. Medieval Times. But I think you'd agree with me, Ms. Basham, too, that in most cases, historians don't really like the use of the term medieval times. So for the sake of that, for students, if you know it as medieval times, then that's fine for context that you got it. But for the rest of this chapter, we're going to just call it the Middle Ages. And that's the only thing I'm going to add. And other than that, Mrs. Basham, do you want to talk about a little bit about the next event or the event that really triggers that beginning of the Middle Ages? Yeah, absolutely. And I think Middle Ages makes the most sense whenever you hear why it was called that it's like oh, okay I'll never forget the beginning and the end of it um, so for example the beginning of the Middle Ages it all started with the fall of Rome so Rome previously had been arguably the most powerful empire in the world and they ended up uh, being taken over by barbarians and so you know you can see in this painting here the city itself is being trashed and ruined and the empire collapses before that had been the center 
of science and learning and understanding. And we go from having all of that to boom, all of it's burned down. Uh, thankfully, several um, Muslims and Middle Eastern countries came in and they saved a lot of the ancient artifacts and the ancient texts. But without them, I mean, we wouldn't have a lot of the works that we have today because Rome was ransacked. So the end of that, really, the end of the, the Roman era really signified the beginning of the Dark Ages, the Middle Ages, uh, right there. And uh, Go ahead, Ms. Basham. Well, I was going to ask you, I mean, I know because we have a, a Eurocentric standpoint of the Dark Ages, the Middle Ages, um, do you want to talk about how, you know, not everywhere was experiencing this dark time? Yeah, of course. And I, uh, just before I do that, I do want to just piggyback on what you said a little bit by saying that's another theme that we were talking about earlier with the dates that students should recognize throughout this year and maybe in our current state now. Oftentimes in society where there's chaos, you can probably expect shortly after that, there's going to be a, an extreme radical reaction and a desire for people to have stability again. And sadly... Many times in society, people will give absolute power to an individual or to individuals and in order to have some stability again. And I know that, for example, students, before I show this other picture and get into the Eurocentric thing that Ms. Basham said, I mean, look at the chaos that's going on in the painting. You see the very Greek inspired character at the top right. You see the architecture in the background. There's our school bell. That'll bring back PTSD memories <laughs> for our students in the background. Uh, and so something else I want you to think about, I'm going to bring up a, a pop culture reference that maybe students, it's even, this is going to make me feel old too, Miss Basham, because even this movie series is becoming old now. I used to bring this reference up. But you probably have seen The Purge before, the very first Purge, and there's been like, what, 18 or 35 of them now? It's like the Now CDs. There's like 85 of them or something. I still have the first one. But um, I always tell the students, imagine The Purge all of the time, not just for 24 hours or not just for the 12 hours of that night, but imagine a society where it feels like it's pretty much the Wild West or the Purge. And it, it, the thing is that, yes, the Roman Empire was authoritative, but it also provided stability economically and religiously and culturally, language and whatnot. Imagine that fabric of society being torn away. So if you think what we're living in right now is absolute hell, Trust me, it can always get worse. And I'm not trying to be all morbid with that, but yes, I think you could agree it would get worse. Going back to what Ms. Bashman said about the Eurocentric thing, we're going to try to be really careful about this because we do want to teach this as though it's truly world history. But the way the standards are in Kentucky and the way that we have to teach the class, it comes from a European point of view. So you see this map of Europe around the time period that we're doing at the end of the Dark Ages. And... Um, Many of our ancestors and, and the foundation of what America is built on is very European influenced. That's why many of our topics come from that point of view. But just to show you that not everything was, like, like, was struggling. So you have the fall of the Roman Empire. You're going to start having the little ice age happen, a great famine, a plague. However, during this time period, as Europe was struggling, this part of the world was not and something that I'm going to let Ms. Basham kind of key on a little bit more. And I'll say that we can go over and this is basically a closer view of the map of Asia. And you'll notice you're not going to recognize really country names because we don't have that yet. You have kingdoms and regions and whatnot. But Ms. Basham, could you tell the students a little bit about kind of what was going on for them while Europe was struggling for the most part off and on? What was it like in most of the Asian areas? Oh my gosh, in Asia, they were flourishing. They were experiencing far from the dark ages. Their metal production was three or 400 years ahead 
of Europe. So Europe, Europeans, you know, in the 1800s, that's the equivalent of the metal production going on in Asia at this point in time. Um, a great video that I'm going to link in our Google Classroom is that is John Green's Crash Course. And he talks about the dark ages and were they really dark or is that just the Eurocentric, which means like European centered viewpoint. Um, and I mean, like I said, Asia, they were absolutely thriving. So for them, far from the dark ages, they were thriving, surviving. Uh, Europe, on the other hand, was not. <laughs> I don't know why, but when you said thriving, surviving, I just wanted to stay st styling and profiling. And I was like, man, I am really freaking old on that reference. And I'm just kind of coming back to this real quick because we're about to transition to a completely different topic. But I do want to come back to our little more personalized view of our conversation. Um, and I think that's something to keep in mind, too, for students. When you, when you grow up in a place like Logan County, it's easy to forget that the rest of the world exists and that it's not just like, you know, when one event's happening over here, it doesn't necessarily always correlate to another event over on the other side. But we are about to end this episode pretty soon in, in a natural event that does impact a great deal of the world and we kind of get into that too. But before we do that, let's go back to that share screen again too, because a lot of our class is built around the social side of that and you need to know what the fabric of society really looked like. So we're gonna go to this view real quick. I'm gonna, I'm gonna move this up here to the towards the top. And this is something that, you know, we're, we're not gonna spend a lot of time on to it, but it will help the rest of the, uh, I guess the fall here, make a little bit more sense in how society changes. And this, this particular structure is called feudalism. It's just the hierarchy of society. Now, some students know that we sort of have a, a structure like this today. It's not as locked in or, or stuck or, or as oppressive as it was back then. But if you're a student, you've probably heard of upper class before or middle class people or working class people or poverty, these kind of things. It's similar to this hierarchy of society. Ms. Basham, do you want to like, you know, say anything that sticks out to you or any context that you would like the students to know about just feudalism in general? Uh, yeah, I think it's important to note that theoretically, theoretically, uh, in America today, the lower class should be able to pull themselves up by their bootstraps and make their way up and be su as successful as they want to be. Now, you and I both know a lot of that also depends on opportunity and situa yeah, different situations. Exactly. Yeah. It's not just pull yourself up by your bootstraps. Um, but I do think it's important to note. There it is. There it went. Uh, to avoid that, this time. <laughs> that during this time, this structure, this hierarchy, it was way more rigid. There was not an opportunity for a peasant to eventually make their way up to being a lord, um, definitely not a king. So um, that I think is just, it's important to note is just how this society was just structured like, and after the chaos of you know, being ransacked and everybody kind of freaking out, peasants, you know, living on their land and being killed, wanting protection, not really knowing what to do. The natural instinct was to turn to somebody that could provide protection and provide, uh, you know, soldiers and land and uh, not money necessarily because the peasants were typically the ones who provided the money. Uh, but that is one of the reasons why this society was structured so rigidly is because I think is because it came from a time of such chaos. Well, and there's something else to add to this too, and you brought up the money thing. It was, it was so difficult on the peasants for so many reasons. And just to give more context for students, 
um, for the life of a peasant, your life mainly revolved around working every day. Um, you didn't really, you didn't have like weekends. We just took it on off. Like you, you worked all the time because working was more about survival. You also, your life was, it was widely affected by faith in most instances. So that, that's pretty much what it was, you know, very, very busy, like very tough life. And before the money aspect was really hard on the peasants, they had to give the, the what well, you see on the, the chart here, it says knights, vassals or to lords. Now, as we go through the next chapter, we're going to start referring to these people as nobles. And that's just saying a landowner. So these landowners would have the peasants and whatnot working for them and the landowners would tax the peasants. But when they tax them, they're not really originally giving money yet. They're giving their harvest in and things that they had worked for. So imagine, I mean, that's how you know people farming and make a lot of their money, is through, most of their money is through harvest. So you're having to give it through taxes. So then the lords and nobles take it and then it goes up the chain. It's like a reverse champagne pyramid at a wedding. It's like the, the, the champagne's going back in the bottle. So in a way it's like they're all taxing each other. The king will put taxes on everybody else below them. The church, uh, which will be for, referred to as clergy members sometimes, don't have to pay the taxes, but then they, they had to raise taxes, so they tax people below them. And obviously, Ms. Basham, who do you think gets the worst brunt of the taxes? The majority of the people, which would be the bottom exactly. of that triangle. Yeah, the peasants. The ones that, that can't afford it the most. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the yeah. ones that, that struggle the most with it. Now, I will bring this up to, to end feudalism. Uh, it wasn't like peasants worked and then they were aware of this structure they they were aware in a way that who was in charge but they didn't go oh man while i'm working in the field boy feudalism is really rough like they, it was just something that was labeled to this hierarchy later on they weren't necessarily cognitively aware of that however there were a couple of things that leads to the downfall of that and obviously the plague is going to be massive and we're going to get into a little bit more of that later but it's hard for a lord or a vassal to tax the peasants if they're dead Again, is this something we're going to get into later? The Black Plague does kill randomly. Many lords or vassals do die in that, and clergy members are susceptible of it. And it, it basically, the, the plague really shakes the entire fabric of society. And you also start seeing the Catholic Church recover more from the Dark Ages, too. So you have a little bit more religious stability. You have the, uh, economic, the economy changes, because as you said earlier, Ms. Basham, people start using money. So kings start making the countries themselves centralized and stronger, and they start making coinage money, whether it's gold or silver. So peasants are no longer turning in their harvests to be able to do certain kind of pains. They're going through money. So again, this system no longer works because of that. Is there anything that you would like to add to feudalism, Ms. Bastion, before we just finish this whole topic up? The only thing I think it's important to note, and we're going to talk about this quite a bit later on, is how like you said earlier, that working was the number one priority for peasants, but then the only other real thing that they were really focused on was the church. The church played a huge role in people's lives, whether it be from taxing them because they did receive taxes from the church, you know, it added on in the pyramid. Um, and then it, religion played such a key role. I mean, people at the time were so superstitious, uh, so we'll get farther into that, obviously, in the next unit. But I wanted to make sure we talked about how, you know, that was such a big part of everyday life. 
Yeah. And keep in mind, you know, this is in most textbooks too, that most information was passed through storytelling. People could understand stories, but most of these people couldn't read, especially the peasant side of that. I mean, the literacy rate was extremely low on that. So let's get to our last topic. Ms. Batch, we'll finish this short episode out because we're trying to keep these into short bursts so the students don't get overwhelmed and neither do we in the whole process. So let's get to what we call the Little Ice Age slash Great Famine. So we'll kind of start the Little Ice Age because as we can both agree the little ice age is what causes this great famine in the past but how would you i guess start off and how should we describe the little ice age to the students uh first i think it's important to note it is not like ice age the movie okay that is not uh what it was like basically what happened is there were a lot of volcanic eruptions that went into the atmosphere, blocked out a lot of the sun's rays, and just changed up the weather patterns, um, which affected the peasants' harvest. So because of the Little Ice Age, you can see in the painting here, um, people are cold, people, uh, you don't see a ton of farmland right now. I mean, obviously there's snow all over the ground, so I don't see any crops growing through that. Uh, so yeah. this affected the harvest, which affected the food and what people could eat. Uh, so do you want to talk about how that kind of transitioned into the Great Famine? Yeah, of course. And just to kind of piggyback off of you again on that, with that natural disaster, and again, that can affect things globally sometimes. Like you said earlier, it's not like the movie Ice Age, and it's also not like a long period of time where everything's just frozen. It really just, it makes the weather very irregular for a couple of hundred years, and it's, a, it's really hard to like balance that out and it throws off the way things are harvested and the weather is just not as normal, but it does strongly affect this economy. Because remember, this is important for looking ahead. The economy in Europe was extremely based around agriculture. So it's mostly about farming. This is way before we get into factories and, and heavy mining and whatnot that we get to later on. So most people's lives are focused around farming and it, you have a very rigid structure and weather can strongly affect that. And um, you know, just kind of going into that great famine part, if, you, if it throws off your harvest and your ability to provide for your family and to provide for your community or the region that you live in, then obviously you're gonna have a famine and if you've never heard of famine before, it's really just massive starvation on a very widespread level. And so you know that the fatality rate, or I should say mortality rate, is going to be very high. And, and back then, Ms. Basham, as you would agree, I mean, if you live to your 30s, you're lucky. I mean, you're considered like a, an elder almost when you live into your 30s. So it's hard enough back then. But what, what are, well, I guess, what are some of the consequences, though? So obviously, it's harder to produce crops especially on a regular pattern when the, when the weather is just like this for so long throughout all the years. And so there's a lot of big drought moments thrown there. So Megan, uh, how, or Ms. Basham, sorry, how would that actually affect like people in their daily life? And maybe how could we even tie that into today with the coronavirus stuff now? Uh, well, one thing I want to note, you know, this painting, this is one of the assignments that's on Google Classroom. And this painting was painted in the 1800s, which is after the Little Ice Age. Now, it's still kind of colder, but it, it's towards the end of it. And so, you know, you and I spoke about, um, I think it's important to note because this is one of the Google Classroom assignments for the week. So I want to make sure we covered this. Uh, this painting was done actually later. This was, you know, painted in the late 1800s, I'm pretty sure. And so, you know, why would they paint something looking back 
Well, when you're starving and you're cold and you're in the middle of an ice age and a famine, your thought isn't, well, why don't I just paint a lovely picture about this? No, your thought is, where's my food going to come from? How am I going to get warm? So that I think is important to know about why this was painted later than the actual ice age was. Um, so that was the first thing that uh, really wanted to hit on just because I know that that is a part of the Google Classroom assignment. And then I'm sorry, what was the second question? Well, I, I guess there's more of, I can't even remember what my second question was either. But I will say this, how about, uh, we're going to kind of, I'm going to do a video later over um, explaining or describing the why. Like I'm obsessed with you defending why you say stuff. And sometimes, I, you know, a challenge that I love to do is try to determine why the artist painted this. And you brought up that, you know, it was painted in the 1800s, which again, would be more of a, as a secondary source about a primary event that happened in the past. But that also says something about the current period that the artist is in, in the 1800s, or at least it says what kind of an artist that that person, whoever he or she is, what they are. And what I mean is, you said something that was really interesting earlier. You said that if they could have made a, a really happy, clappy kind of painting and everybody was having fun, like a bowl of cherries out here and whatever is happening, but instead he or she chose to paint something real and suffering and poverty and people living in tents in the background and whatnot, that says something about the artist that they care and they value more maybe of realism or something along those lines. They may even have what a cynical view or maybe just at least a, trying to tell a historical story through a painting. You know, students, you may have heard the phrase, a picture can be worth a thousand words before. Trust me, with me and Mrs. Basham's teaching style, you really get used to squeezing as much juice out of these pictures as you possibly can to really understand a true story. Now, Mrs. Basham, I will ask another question about this painting within the Ice Age is, some of the other aesthetics too, because students will choose to either look in the foreground or the background first. What, are there any certain symbols or the, the way the sky looks or any particular part that just stands out to you? And what, what do you think is so unique about it? I think that there are two key things that really stood out the first time I saw this painting. Uh, the first being what I consider the focal point, which is those tents in the center. And, uh, you know, really looking at that and realizing people were living in those and kind of foreshadowing to Mr. Z and Webster's class later on for these students. Uh, we talked about how it almost looked like a Hooverville during the Great Depression. Uh, and so that really because of the color choice, how it's so much brighter than the background, that is where my eye was immediately drawn. So that's kind of how we know it's in the center. Everything looks like it's leading to it. That's how we know that that's the focal point of the painting. Uh, and then the other part that I, you know, I just thought about was the color choices with the sky, with the, you know, the overcast with the clouds. I mean, obviously there's probably a snowstorm or something, but then I think symbolically this time period was not a sunny, happy, you know, go lucky time. So I think the color choice of using the grays and the blues is appropriate for the time period that this painting is representing. So exactly. I think that that, that's the symbolism that I saw. Did you see anything that you wanted to add yeah, to it? You know, just to add a little bit more to your, your color contrast mention, uh, because when I looked at this last night again, I thought, man, I noticed something that I didn't notice last year. When I did, and that, that is more of, you know, whenever you tell someone to look ahead in your life and they often reference the horizon or, you know, it's like symbolic of looking ahead to hope in your life. And I think in a way this painting shows you what little hope many of these people probably felt like was ahead of them because 
in front of us, we do see a lot of color. We do see them trying to live their lives. But if you look ahead, it's hazy, it's gray, it's foggy. Because as far as a hope in the future, there is a lot of uncertainty. And, and, and again, maybe even some people feel like that today in some ways, depending on what kind of situation you're looking at. But I do think there's just lots of things. So I, I really appreciate your outlook on the color contrast and maybe the meaning and the symbolism. I love the focal point mentioned when we get into the next chapter in the Renaissance. That's going to be a, an incredible, significant part about the Renaissance art that we'll cover. I also think, Ms. Basham, that your mentor teacher from Muhlenberg County will appreciate your U.S. history reference of the Hooverville because that does remind you remind you of like a shanty town sort of in a way with the with the fabric stuff and i know um, sometimes you might see those in, in European communities if they're doing like a marketplace. But in the context of this painting, I don't think, Miss Bastian, that we're looking at a normal marketplace here, at least one that's at least flourishing in a way. Uh, and just kind of moving on a little bit into this, I think we're getting into a little bit of the next episode. So we won't go into those particular pictures yet. But to finish up this particular podcast, Miss Basham, can we talk about maybe this would be a good way of tying it into today uh, is you know, if your harvest is affected within the Great Famine and the, and the Little Ice Age, how could that exacerbate, like make things worse, especially whenever we're about to get into the fact that the bubonic plague was going on at this time and we have the coronavirus now. The, the way people eat and the nutrition, how could that affect things, Ms. Basham? Yeah, I mean, it, it affects life. Whenever I think about it, it affects it in two different ways. The first way I think of the price of things. So, um, for example, if you remember at the beginning of this pandemic, a little bit now, but not quite so much, toilet paper was like on demand. That was the hot commodity was toilet paper. Don't know why everybody just all of a sudden's like, hey, we're going to need a lot of toilet paper. So the price actually went up a little bit because there was such a high demand for it. There wasn't enough toilet paper being supplied. The shelves were empty, were bare. Um, so the price went up a little. I think about um, Katrina, the hurricane that hit a little bit ago, or what was it, 2016? 2016? No, 2006? It was a long time ago. It was like yeah, it, was, it wasn't 2016. I think. Uh, I think it was. Yeah. Anyway, but, farther back. Um, <laughs> see, we don't require you to know specific dates. <laughs> there you go. But you do um, understand the causes and consequences. Exactly. So, but after Katrina, water surprisingly was in such high demand so places could sell bottles of water for absolutely ridiculous prices because people needed it and yeah, there just wasn't enough water rare so you know i tell you what miss basham i remember a story of like a local gas station near new orleans after katrina yeah. and they were doing something today what miss basham is referring to is something called price gouging where businesses kind of take advantage of what resources. Roofing companies did this whenever they were repairing the houses. So they would price gouge insurance companies and whatnot. But I remember uh, someone wrote an article freaking out about bags of ice because the gas station increased the bags of ice. to I think it was like 40 something dollars a bag. And it was just crazy prices on there. And you can see that as being wrong. Maybe that's wrong. Maybe that's unethical. Or maybe that's capitalism. Maybe that's you taking advantage of the market and the demand that's on there. It's, it's weird because as students can already see history, and it's a good time to go ahead and mention this, Ms. Basham, is that if you're a math-minded student or science-minded student, we, we get it because most of the time when you're doing assignments, you know, two plus two, as Mr. Webster will say next year, two plus two equals four. 
However, a lot of times in social studies, we can say two plus two equals orange, and you have to defend why it is orange, or it could be blue or yellow. And, and again, it's like there's so many other causes, and very rarely in history is something completely black or white. There, there, there's a lot of gray, and there's a lot of causes, and there's lots of consequences for things. So don't be so quick to say something is bad completely, or something is good, or the, you would never this, or I would never do that. You just don't know, and that's why we try to make the history as realistic as we possibly can. Miss Basham, I don't know about you, but I think this is a fantastic place to stop for episode four because the students are probably just ready to just, uh, no, I don't know, freak out. Just take their computer and just throw it against the wall or their phone. They would definitely not do that to their phone, but they yeah. would definitely maybe do it to the computer. But we will be, and we're going to have episode five recorded today too. We'll have that uploaded with this. But we're going to mainly focus on just the Black Death or also called the bubonic plague. So other than that, I'm going to go back to this other screen here. Again, these um, episodes that we're going to do, this one's kind of long and so will the next one be but the next chapter miss basham and i are going to focus more on specific items and maybe that will be easier so we we're really curious about your feedback is do you like one or two episodes that covers a lot of content or would you rather have you know three to five minute or six minute episodes where it focuses on one topic at a time i'd really be interested to hear your feedback but i think both of us would through that process other than that, I hope you have a great day. Hope you get some work done, and but I also hope you live your life and have fun. So we'll see you on episode five. Take care.